Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art. From time to time, I talk about family stuff. Five years ago, my sister Joanne was diagnosed with young-onset dementia. For the past couple of years, I was her power of attorney and family caregiver. Joanne died on January 13th at the age of 70. I was glad to be relieved of the burden of caregiving while grieving her death and processing what it means to be the last surviving member of my family of origin. This week's show is special to me because it deals with those of us who've experienced the complicated feelings that happen when the caregiving ends and the grief begins. People like Janet Nisbet. For eight years, Janet was caregiver to her husband, Richard Limmert. Richard died on January the 8th at the age of 74. Here is part of an email Janet sent to us recently. In my own long journey of caregiving, she writes, I've learned about caregiver burnout, the ubiquitous topic. However, when that job is done, how do folks rebuild their lives? It would be an interesting and timely exploration for you and those like me who are in what I have come to call caregiver recovery. To understand what Janet means by caregiver recovery, I first needed to get a sense of what it was like for her to be thrust into the role of caregiver quite suddenly. Janet Nisbet, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you, Brian. I, I want to first understand you as a caregiver before we talk about you know what happens when the caregiving role stops. So first, tell me a little bit about your husband, Richard, and his illness. So in 2015, his life changed dramatically. Up till that time, he would have been 67 at that time. He was a hale and healthy, very active uh, architect. And uh, he, one day, completely out of the blue, um, he'd had no significant health issues whatsoever. He was standing, talking to a friend. He had a full-blown seizure, uh, fell backwards in a rigid seizure position and fractured his skull and suffered a traumatic brain injury. Um, so his world and my world changed abruptly at that time. So you had to ramp up. You had to go from, from having a, a go-getting uh, partner who was in, as you said, full career yep. uh, as a successful architect to, to what? Paint me a picture of, of what that was like from that moment on. Well, that sent us on a, you know, kind of almost an eight-year journey after that. Suddenly, he needed full care. He, although his motor skills weren't impaired, um, Mentally, emotionally, he was a different man. Like, we brought home a very different person from the hospital because, you know, with brain injury, there's a lot of personality change. Uh, he couldn't work 
Um, he was a he loved his profession and he was a bit of a workaholic. Um, that was a great frustration. And then you were managing not only his personality change, but his physical needs as well, plus trying to work. <laughs> he went on to anti-seizure medication, which uh, you probably know Brian causes its own kind of set of issues, uh, eliciting fairly substantial tremor. So then he couldn't work, you know, he couldn't hold a pencil, uh, which was kind of heartbreaking for sure. So, so what would you be doing for him on a day to day to day and sometimes even an hour to hour basis? So that was, you know, like he, he couldn't cook, he couldn't clean, he couldn't, you know, couldn't manage what he wore. So you'd be picking out clothes for him. He became mm -hmm. incontinent. Um, and of course, he was falling a lot. His balance was terrible. And it got to the point where I left my work um, to be home with him all the time because I couldn't leave him in the house by himself. You never know what you're going to come home to at the end of the night or what he thought he was going to be able to do. And then he would do, you know, in those early days, you know, literally hiding the car keys, hiding his wallet so he didn't go online and purchase things. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was like, you go from kind of busy life to crazy stress, just never knowing what each morning, each day is going to bring. And then I get a call one day and, uh, there's a bed ready and nobody was more kind of shocked or taken back than me because that becomes a whole other level of loss, uh, you know, as much as you think you're prepared to pack your person off out the door, um, it doesn't, that is just the worst, worst. Uh, that was, that was bad. Hard day. Yep. Yeah. Um, how, how much of a change was it for you? I mean, often, uh, I've heard, that when a loved one uh, first goes into long-term care, there might be a little bit of a honeymoon, not for everybody, but a feeling that, okay, I know it's no longer all on me, 100%. And, and what was it like for you? I thought, I thought that's what it would be. Like, I was prepared for that. This place was kind of literally down the street from me, so I thought, well, this is great, you know? Go down in the morning, go down afternoon, the evening, you know, we'll sit, this will be better, I'll take him out for walks, it'll be great, I can bring him home, you know, we'll get him upstairs, that kind of thing. And that's not quite the way it went at all, um, because I immediately walked into our long-term care issues um, in Ontario, our, our standards of care, and that whole um, really mess suddenly that became the daily struggle, you know, what am I going to walk into today? You know, what were the kinds of things that you were seeing? Oh, like the terrible, terrible staff shortages, um, terrible morale issues. You know, I did walk in there one day and, you know, he hadn't been changed. You know, he'd be sitting soaking wet, dirty, um, bed not changed, bed soaking wet, and you're kind of and you'd know that somebody had been in there to pull him out to go to the to breakfast, 
and yet he'd been put back in the bed that way you know there was no way mm. you wouldn't have seen that not good so all, um, so all of this was adding to your to your distress at a time when you thought your distress might be relieved yeah but that you're you're in a position it's a huge position of trust as you know yeah um you hand your person over and then when that trust is broken it's very very difficult for the caregiver to come out of the hypervigilant place janet says her husband richard was in poor physical health sad and isolated she says he began the process of applying for a medically assisted death then, in January, he was hospitalized with a serious infection around his gallbladder. His doctor offered him the option to receive active treatment, but Janet says Richard just wanted to be kept comfortable. He died five days later. He had, I think, as good a death as we could have hoped for, but it still went, still went five days. So. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But, I, you know, we as a family kind of all said we couldn't have wished him one more day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found it hard to let go at the end, even though even though my sister had, you know, she she got COVID in the end and stopped drinking, and and I knew that if she didn't, you know, there were other times, many other times, she bounced back that she wasn't going to bounce back this time. It, it took a few days to to understand that that was what was happening. Yeah. Um, Janet, you wrote to us because you wanted to share what the grief process has been like, which is mm -hmm. something that, you know, we've, we've had a lot of stories. There's been a lot of talk out there that, that family caregivers need and deserve, require far more in the way of support. That, that, that story is out there. Yep. But what it's like to process grief uh, after you've had this heavy caregiving role, um, what's it been like for you? Well, I think you realize pretty quickly that really, truly, the moment you become a caregiver, you start grieving. You know, there's just layers of that. You're grieving for yeah. all this, for their loss. You're grieving for your loss. But as we said earlier, you don't get to deal with that at all. No. So when that, like in our case, it was, you know, kind of an expected death, you might say, uh, or foreseeable death. Let's use that word. That's probably a better word. Um, but then you realize that, you know, you've been, it's just micro losses for best part, in our case, best part of eight years. So you're really tired, you know, like you're just, when that, when that final moment comes, it's, it is a sense of disbelief because you've been bringing them back from the edge for all these years. And it's not that you don't want them to be in peace but you just lost your job because <laughs> you know? you're fired. so you're so defined by that right you're defined I'm by the not caregiving by, role yeah yeah like you're you're defined by it because of the person that you're caring for but you're also defined by by all the you know the family the friends the community who kind of see you in that role so you're command central your job is just gone and you're just, it's this feeling of being completely untethered. When the physical fatigue passed, started to ebb, um, then it would be just this feeling of every day, like, I think I've forgotten something, you know, I think 
I should be doing something. And, you know, then you realize, oh, you know, yeah, I don't have that job anymore. He's gone. So it's a very unsettling place to be. And then you start to feel the grief. You know, you, and it's not that you haven't cried before. It's not that you haven't kind of railed before. Um, because certainly through the caregiving process, there's been lots of those days. But then, you know, you, you do start to experience this bereavement, you know, experience this mourning, I guess you'd say. We'll be right back. I'm Keith MacArthur. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is a podcast about my son, (gasps) the rare disease that keeps him from walking or talking. I mean, Bryson's perfect, but his life is really hard. And our family's search for a cure. Oh my gosh, maybe science is ready for this. It's part memoir, part medical mystery. We can do just about anything. Modifying DNA. My heart and my throat. Cure is controversial. Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, Janet Nisbet was primary caregiver to her husband, Richard, after he suffered a traumatic brain injury eight years ago. He died in January. Since then, Janet, age 69, has been grieving the loss of her husband and has experienced the gamut of complex feelings that family caregivers sometimes experience following the death of a loved one. Did you ever like there are there are moments with with my sister where um, people would, you know, on on milestone days, you know, birthdays, Mm -hmm. family get together days, you know, holidays where you would get together. People come up to you and they and they say, um, well, this will be a difficult one for you. You know, they 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 assume that you miss the person in their best days, but you also miss the routine of caring for them. Uh, yeah. You know, for me, and I don't know what it was like for you, there were moments when I would take my sister back in a heartbeat as she was the day before she died. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's so complicated, isn't it? It's so, it's such an intimate relationship you develop with that person because they're so vulnerable. You know, it's a different kind of love that you're sharing with them in those in that place where you're a caregiver. And it is so fulfilling, right? So yeah, I understand that. You you've never felt felt more needed, more more wanted, yeah. more yeah. with purpose, right? You have you know, you have your own experience. I want you to talk about the system that is out there to help people like us process our grief after those caregiving days what what kind of a system is there well i haven't i haven't found it right <laughs> if you know if you got one please send it my way it's almost as if once the loved one passes away it's it's done it's it, over oh 100 percent. in this particular long-term care when the person dies you get no acknowledgement so there's not a note for management. There's not a phone call for management. There's You have 48 hours to clear out the room. And in Richard's case, he, he wasn't there when he died, so his body didn't leave that, that facility. We went in on the next day and cleared everything out and never heard from him again. 
Um, I had two of the PSWs call me um, outside of hours. So, you know, because we, you, again, you've built relationships with these people. They're very important. But yeah, once they're gone, they're gone. Move on. You know, that's, that's culturally, that's what people want you to do. They want you to get this over with pretty quick and move on. Not sure what you're supposed to move on to because it's not the same, you know. You can pick up activities, you can have tea with friends you've missed, you can see your grandkids more often, but um, it, everything's changed. You're, because it has to be because you've changed. You know, the, the process of caregiving, the process of grieving, and it is a process, uh, changes you. Janet Nisbet, I want to thank you for speaking with me and, and let me say, um, you know, may, may Richard's memory always be a blessing to you and to your family. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. And thank you for this conversation. It's been, I've really enjoyed it. As have I. As Janet Nisbet just said, the grief that family caregivers experience following the death of a loved one may not even be acknowledged, let alone comforted. It's a gap that has gotten the attention of some experts. Okay, so hi, my name is Zelda Freitas. I'm a social worker by training. I work in a healthcare network here in Montreal. I work as a clinical senior advisor at this time. Zelda Freitas is part of a team that has conducted research into caregiver grief. Zelda Freitas, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you very much, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be speaking with you too. We just heard Janet Nisbet talk about the death of her husband and what a challenge it is to deal with her unique grief and emotions. How common is Janet's experience as a caregiver going through grief? I would say, Brian, that it's actually very common because caregivers' needs do not end with the death of the person that they have been caring for. Uh, their needs are, 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 are intense and it's linked to their caregiving experience. So their grief is, is different than uh, what would we normally experience as grief. As a caregiver, we're dealing with the loss of the person, but we're also dealing with the loss of the role that we've taken on and all of the impacts that caregiving have on a person. So how much does the system support uh, family caregivers, essential caregivers uh, in their grief process? Uh, what we're saying um, is that we need to be better organized. We need to be able to provide more service, better services, better supports to not only what caregivers are caring in their active role, but also in the, what we're calling the post-caregiving period. Um, and so we need to be much more supportive of caregivers in that post-caregiving period because right now there seems to be, a, there are services that exist, for sure there are resources that are out there, but they're not perhaps easily accessible or we're not considering this post-caregiving period as part of the continuum of care yeah. that is being presently provided. Um, and so people find themselves very actively involved in in the care of a person with a care team um, and then all of a sudden find that that's all gone. Not only the person that they've been caring for is gone, but that whole system that they've been involved with is also gone. And they may not have realized how much subtle emotional support they were getting, uh, they were receiving from the professional caregivers of their loved one. And all of that disappears. And, and you know, Janet talked about being asked to clean out her husband's room at the long-term care within 24 hours. And, and after that, she felt forgotten. 
Exactly. And I think that's a common feeling as well, because the person that is the focus of care is the person that's died. Uh, and so caregivers do receive support from the teams that they're involved with, from the professionals and, and the care providers. And exactly that, all that is ended with the person uh, when they die. And, and they're left with a possibly some connection for a very short period of time. And that's what we're trying to address in our uh, our project that we're trying to get off the ground is, is to provide support to caregivers in that post-caregiving period and during that transition. So tell me more about the project that you're working on, which is studying the benefits of offering caregivers more grief support services. First of all, what do those support services look like? So right now, what we're looking at is is what we're calling our caregiver grief connection. It's a project that we want we want to uh, put in place to address bereaved caregivers. So very specific to their to their needs. So the the project is going to be a telehealth virtual project, and that would be support intervention that will be provided by uh, social work interns, trained and skilled social work interns and supervised, so that they will be able to continue and help the caregivers through this transition as sort of like a bridge, bridging them from the active caregiving phase to the post-caregiving phase and hopefully linking them to resources that are out there that exist that sometimes they're not aware of. And so we see the program as a bridge from active care to post-caregiving. Have you, is there any research on the effectiveness of this kind of approach of, of bereavement uh, counseling for, for family caregivers? Well, we, we do know through research that not all caregivers and not all individuals require bereavement support. Um, we know through research that there is about 30 to 40% of people that could pro- could benefit from some type of support. Um, and about 10% of that of those people that require additional, uh, more intensive support uh, due to perhaps complex grief issues, etc. And so what we're trying to target is those that 30% of individuals and within that the caregiving population of those individuals to offer them some support to help them through, like I said, through this transition and see if there's anything else that they may need if they need to be linked up to more professional resources, if they need to be linked up to uh, bereavement support groups, or if our service will be enough uh, to get them through this transition. And so we are applying for research to make sure that this project that we're putting forth is going to respond to caregivers' needs uh, during the period that we're targeting and that we are fulfilling what what their needs are at that time, but also demonstrating that this service is a good service and, and, uh, and that we can then maybe see about expanding it in the ways that we will learn from our research project. It seems like a good idea. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Why isn't the system or why hasn't the system been providing this kind of a service up till now? Oh, that I, I'm not sure. I don't know if I can even answer that question. It's a good question, but I, I you know, I think, uh, you know, I think part of it is our, our, in our society is a, is what we say is a death denying society. It's not a, it's not issues that we'd like to address. Death, dying, and grief are not, you know, in the forefront uh, of most people's conversations and, uh, and thinking. And, and so uh, I think part of it is, is that we're, we need to better understand uh, how we can help each other 
through this very difficult period. Uh, we learned a lot through the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the grief that and the experiences of death that came out of that, unfortunately. But I think we're in a better position right now as a society to say this really impacts people and it impacts people in a, and it can impact people in a very negative way. And so 25% of, of the Canadian population are providing care to others. So how are we going to support them better? Not only when they're caring, but definitely after their care period is finished. You've been a social worker for over 25 years. Based on your experience and what you've seen, do you think we're getting better at helping caregivers following the death of a loved one? I think we're getting better uh, caring for caregivers overall. I think there's more attention and more recognition. Definitely, you know, with the Canadian Centre for Caregiving Excellence, who is trying to advocate for better care for caregivers and all of the partners across Canada, looking at the issues of caregiving, recognizing caregivers, trying to support them in the best way possible. What we're adding to this conversation is the post-caregiving period, a period of caregiving that is often uh, not addressed, but it's definitely uh, something that we need to add to that whole caregiving trajectory. It is part of the continuum of care and we want to make sure that it's being addressed as other needs of caregivers are as well. Zelda, if I may get a bit personal for a moment, I understand that you're in that difficult chapter of your own life when you're a caregiver for both of your parents. That's right. Yeah, I, I, we care for uh, our parents, my, myself and my siblings. So we're a family care team uh, that is providing care to them. As someone who studies and advocates for caregivers after loss, um, how prepared are you uh, for that moment? Have you been thinking about it? I've been thinking about it since the moment that my father was diagnosed with vascular dementia, actually about eight to 10 years ago. Mm. Um, because of my training, I guess, and because I've worked in palliative care, I know that we need to address these losses as they happen. Uh, and we need to uh, continue to look at their losses that the person is experiencing, but also the losses of the family that go along with that. Um, and so am I prepared? I don't know. I, I give it a lot of thought for sure. I think that I'm going to be prepared, but you know, in all honesty, Brian, I think that uh, when the situation, when it actually happens, we're not as prepared as we think we are. And we still need to, to experience uh, that yeah. grief and yeah. uh, find our way through it. You know, Zelda, I flipped through two perspectives. There were moments when I was immersed in it and there were other moments when it was like I was watching a movie. And, and I think that's, that's the way it is with a lot of people because the, the emotional import of it is just so strong and so uh -huh. powerful. And, and, you know, all I can say is, you know, I wish you presence when you're there and strength, you know, you and your siblings as, as you go through, as you enter that difficult period. And I want to thank you for speaking with us and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me. And thank you for addressing this, this topic. It's very important. And I'm, I'm glad to see that it's being addressed. My sister Joanne lived the last seven months of her life at the Apotex Center at Baycrest Health Sciences. Earlier this week, they invited family caregivers like me to a memorial service for my sister and the other residents who died since the beginning of the year. Just acknowledging the grief we feel means a lot. That's our show this week. If you'd like to comment, our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods with help from Stephanie Dubois, Isabel Gallant, and Amina Zoffer. Our digital producer is Ruby Buiza, and our senior producer is Colleen Ross. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. 
See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.